0: It's time for Tom Girl with JJ Jurgens, a different breed. Tom Girl. Tom Girl. Welcome to Tom Girl, where we talk all things sports, entertainment, fashion, and adventure. On today's show, we're talking to Jill Dimby Guest, an Emmy-nominated writer, producer, and director, whose latest film and now Love is out now. Welcome to the show, Jill.
1: Great to be here. Thank you for having me. What a pleasure.
0: <laughs> Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Well, I'm so excited to hear about, um, well, we're definitely going to talk about your film, the, the film I just watched it, and it's fantastic. But before we get into that, I wanted to kind of dive into your journey a bit. I want to hear, I know you've done a lot of different things, worn many different hats. So I wondered if you could kind of walk us through how you got involved in the industry or even what you were doing before the industry, if there was something, and then to where you are now
1: well um i will say it's been a long and winding road and uh you know as a child i used to like to write stories so i was always writing so um it gave me good feelings and i started to you know see films and i didn't know in my teens that i wanted to be a filmmaker but i did see a film called blow up which was a kind of avant-garde film at the time in the 60s and Um, But it mixed up time and place and flashbacks and, but it had feeling to it. And, and I got to, these emotions came through and I thought, oh my God, these are stories that can make you feel. And, and unconsciously I think, oh my God, maybe I could do that. You know, maybe I could make stories that would make you feel something. And when I got to college, I um, wasn't a film student but I was studying psychology and Russian and some things and I took a film 101 class and started seeing these avant-garde French films that also mixed up time and memory and place and also had incredible guttural you know visceral feelings evoked in me and I thought okay I think I want to try this and so I changed my major to film and was the only uh woman in my film class uh, to graduate. And um, I did it. I made, I jumped, jump ship. My parents thought I was insane. Mm-hmm. They had, you know, what do you do with that major? Right. And so mm-hmm. um, I did something with it. <laughs> so, <laughs> you
0: definitely have. Huh?
1: <laughs> so after, you know, the, the film school thing, I just, I went to New York. I was going to go to graduate school. I was accepted at the London Film School and USC. And I went back to New York because I'm from New Jersey. I went back to New York to make some money to go to graduate school. And as I am working at Madison Square Garden Productions oh. for the director of productions, who does you know all the rock shows and everything else, I became friends <laughs> with a man who was the lighting designer and tour director for the Rolling Stones. Ooh. And he loved young people and, you know, other a lot of others just wanted to sell me drugs or something Mm -hmm. but he was just lovely and i said you know i need a place to edit my thesis film for for school and he said uh you know i'm friends with the mazel brothers and they had just done give me shelter which was my idol i mean they were my idols i'm like what what and he said um why don't i give them a call they love to help young filmmakers so he called them and he said yeah have her call me so I called them and they said, "Yeah, come up, meet everybody, and use our editing rooms at night." So it was from that um, I ended up leaving my job at Madison Square Gardens. The Mazels actually gave me my first job, and you know they trained me as an editor. I mean, I I was doing some shooting too. I used to do some AC work for Al Mazels and um, some second second camera shooting, but they ended up training me as an editor. And so that's how I got my first start in the business. And the people that I met them are still my very good friends today. Um, So that was part of how it started. I think I was a very lucky person because back then, you know, there was a really nice female population in the documentary community, not so much in the feature film community, but definitely the, um, you know, filmmaker community in New York was really very pro pro female. And I had role models who worked at the Maisel brothers who were directors and editors. And I thought, Oh, I can, you know, this is a path. Mm-hmm.
0: And how great how th- I love, like, sometimes we have a lot of guests on here. And a lot of the key fat point is where they just asked for something and they went for it. So it was you like then making that call to them and asking to edit there. And then it led to this right. whole, whole absolutely. career.
1: Absolutely. absolutely, and, and, there's a good story that's involved in this, too. If anyone knows the film Gray Gardens, um, which was, you know, pretty much it became their famous film. and and I remember I was syncing up dailies, which at the time for any of you who don't know, film and tape were separate. So I was actually handling real film as an mm-hmm. editor, and I'd have to sync sync up the sound in the picture. So Alan David Mazel's were going to, do a biography of Lee Radziwill, who was, you know, related to the, the Beals. And um one day I remember Al was shooting and his camera went off of uh, Lee Radziwill sitting on a fence. It went off of her onto these women in, in Grey Gardens and it never left. And he called me and said, let me know how the footage is. You've got to see this footage. I think this is going to be our film. And that's, That's how Great Gardens started. Wow.
0: Wow. That's a great story.
1: Yeah. So, yeah, it went back a long way, but I'm here to tell the tale.
0: (laughs) That's great. I want to also ask you more about working at Madison Square Gardens.
1: Oh, yeah. That was a trip. Well, I had just come out of film school, right? And so I was being a secretary. I really didn't have any secretarial skills, but I guess they liked me. So, um, which I realized matters a lot. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, everything was happening there. I mean, it was the dog shows. It was one rock show after the next. I mean, it was just crazy.
0: Yeah. And
1: I, I had, I have one great story there too. I remember Carlos Santana was playing there one night, and I was doing a lot of still photography at that point. And my boss would let me go backstage, and you know, shoot, you know, which you probably couldn't do today, but. I was doing a lot of stills and I was taking pictures backstage and Carlos Santana came out and said, you know, our conga drummer didn't show up. And I was like, wow. So he said, we, I need a conga drummer. And I was standing at the line where all these people were waiting to get in. And this kid says to me, I'm a conga drummer. I'm a really good conga drummer. And I brought him back to meet Carlos Santana and he played the garden that night.
0: Oh my god! And
1: actually ended up touring with them. <laughs> so like, I really paid it forward, you know? I mean, it was yeah, like, for
0: sure. Made that it guy's like life.
1: <laughs> yeah, it kind of made his life. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Oh, I love that. That's so amazing. Yeah. So then how did you evolve? So I know you were, uh, worked in promo for a while and then got into more documentaries. Kind of tell me how that career evolved.
1: Well, um, well I'm going to back up a little from where I left off at the Maisels because <laughs> I ended up, Um, Through another fortuitous event, through another woman um, who brought me on as an assistant editor to this series at public television in New York called The Men Who Made the Movies. And it was about the lives of Howard Hawks, Ral Walsh, George Cukor, King Vidor, Vincent Minnelli, and William Wellman. And she brought me on as a young assistant editor. And, you know, I barely knew what I was doing at that point. I mean, I knew something. And we did the film on Alfred Hitchcock, which aired on PBS and they still run it. Um, and after, after that, as we went through the series, I worked on the whole series, my mentor left to become a director and I replaced her as his, his editor. And it was, um, the producer was Richard Schickel, who was a, at the time a well-known film critic and film buff. And it was his series. So I became his editor and then his producer and we, you know, I edited and and then ended up producing, mm-hmm. you know, probably 10, 12 things for WNET in New York. Oh that's um, awesome. Yeah. Also, you know, one of these lucky fortuitous events. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so it started, you know, that started started things. And then then I went into, I wanted to move to LA because I thought my dream had been really to be in feature film. So I thought, all right. I'll take, the, I'll take the move. And I started, getting, I started getting like assistant editor roles on feature films that were from Los Angeles that would come to New York that needed what they called a standby editor. And I was in the union in New York. So I worked on one film that was called The Bell Jar, and they brought me out to L.A., And they got me in the union in L.A. And that was no easy feat. But they didn't want women in the union out there then, I'll tell you that. Mm -hmm. So somehow this production manager who had my back, you know, they flew me to L.A. I was there for six months to finish the film and he got me into the union. And so I was an East Coast and West Coast union union editor. So it was amazing. And then I got a second shot at doing um, a film called The Long Riders, Walter Hill um where i was a new york editor for a while and then i went on location with the film we finished in la and i became an associate editor on that film
0: how challenging was that for you where you're saying when they didn't want women as editors at that time
1: well i kind of had an i i was young and kind of an an upstart you know so i i was i was a little feisty about it <laughs> yeah they, didn't, they <laughs> didn't want that you know i mean it's like They wanted me to start as a apprentice again, you know, to be in the feature film business in Los Angeles, but I'd already been doing music and sound editing on features and other things. So I didn't see the need to go back to being an apprentice, even though, you know, I could have ridden on the coattails of some well-known editor had I decided to do that, but I decided not to do that.
0: So how did you kind of push against that or like forge your own way?
1: Well, I was lucky enough to get these, you know, kind of roles with, you know, in a Walter Hill film, which did very well. And then I made friends and I, you know, did some sound editing and other kinds of stuff. So, you know, I made it my way. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Then yeah. how how did that transition to doing like, uh, I know you were Emmy nominated and then you've also won some Pro Max awards. Yes. Yeah, so well, that,
1: that was, um, yeah, it's, it's, I think that was, I started working at public television again because I wanted to get out of post-production here. And I, another fortuitous event happened and someone knew someone at public television in LA and they said, call him. And he just happened to be doing a series um, called Take Five, the Arts. And it was about LA artists, these short documentaries. So he had, you know, You know, the wherewithal to see that I could probably do this, (laughs) be a director and producer since I had come out of the editing room. Um, Not a big leap. And uh, he let me produce my first documentary. And that documentary got nominated for an Emmy. So once again, you know, like, yeah, I think I was headed in the right direction.
0: Yeah. So you talk about um, these four. Go ahead.
1: Fortuitous events, like I yeah. my my life like happens little miracles, like every seven years, when I look at the flow chart of it, <laughs> Um, which is, I don't know how it happens, but it does. But it, there's always some pivot point happening where, like, I don't know what I'm going to do. And like, what, what's the next path? You know, it's like, what's the next path? What's the next thing? And you try to push something and it doesn't work. You think it's going to be a straight path and it never is. Mm-hmm. So in this case, you know, I got on the, you know, public television train at, you know, uh, in Los Angeles. And so I worked with them for several years on overlapping projects.
0: How do you, you, is there a process that you use, I mean, to stay open for all those things when you don't know, you know, when, like, when you don't know what's next or, you know, you feel you need to change, but you don't know, like, are you a meditator or do you just like look for these little signs in the universe to come at you?
1: I think I'm a say yes girl uh, and I'm open. I'm, I'm pretty open person. So I think it's probably an energy that emanates from me. Um, you know, like people have given me opportunities. that I had no right to have any of those opportunities in some of them. Like I can give you a really great example. I'll give you another example. Okay. If you're interested in this. Yes. Give it to me. <laughs> because it's It's tangential, but not, I mean, so there was one thing, I was after public television, I thought, well, how am I gonna really make a living at this because we kept losing our funding. Every show we would do, you know, we'd get Emmys and then we'd lose our funding. So it was like, it didn't make any sense at all, right? So I thought, all right, what, what's next, what's next? And I remember, I love doing biographies of people. And I remember interviewing for a job with a production company that didn't have a great reputation and it was like to do some sort of unauthorized celebrity biography and i thought you know this is really not in my wheelhouse like i'm not an unauthorized celebrity girl and i remember walking out of this building and it was in brentwood and it's standing on the corner and i looked up to the sky and I said god please don't make me have to do this job and i swear to god 10 minutes later i got a call um, from a guy that I worked with who said, hey, you want to come start an audiobooks company at our company? We know you love literature. And I think you <laughs> would be a good fit for starting this company for us because we're building different companies. They had a sound design company, uh-huh. a rather, rather well-known one. And they said, you know, we're building all these companies. You should start this company for us. And I'm like, oh, okay. I mean, literally, <laughs> it was like that.
0: You're like, yes. So
1: I... I started up an audio books company, wow. you know, using celebrity narrators and I licensed best-selling books. And I did that for a few years and it was really fun. You know, while I was sort of doing a little public television here and there, but um, that was great. So it was another one of those, you know, I think, I think in the back of my head, I always have some sort of thing that says, believe, you know, that, you know, the door will open. You will be led you know, and we don't do a lot of affirmations and that stuff. So I have like, there's a metaphysical aspect of it at work. I think unconsciously or consciously most of the time, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. I mean, people, people think it's crazy, but.
0: I don't think it's crazy at all. (laughs) I do a lot of that myself. So (laughs) When you you get in a
1: really bad job situation, you think, how am I going to get out of this? You know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, uh, Somehow something happens, you know. There's a the light comes through the clouds, you know.
0: Yeah, exactly. That's what I think you just can't let it get you down and just keep open and you know right. keeping that positive energy out there for sure. Um, well, you also I'm interested in this because I'm a I'm a promo editor producer too, yeah. and and you yeah. were you were too and won a pro max. I did. So tell me yeah, about so that world.
1: I did. Um, I was doing promos for CBS um, mm-hmm. at a time when. They were doing miniseries, and you know all all the top shows we did. It was a really high end agency that worked for CBS at the time, and I was producing, you know, like you know, I don't million. I mean, they were million dollar. So I mean, there were big spots, <laughs> and I was doing that. And I thought this isn't really in my wheelhouse either. You know, um, I'm more of a creative than I was a line producer type. Not that I was. I mean, I was an agency producer. Um, and I wasn't loving that but I knew I could write this stuff so I knew a lot of I liked a lot of the shows that CBS was doing at the time so I said you know I'm just going to write a bunch of promos and show them to the creative director and I did and I took it upon myself to write a bunch of stuff and I you know made a meeting with him and I showed him the scripts and he said hey these are pretty great and he started letting me do a bunch of radio commercials which he loved and so i once again transferred you know into more of my wheelhouse than being an onset time clock producer signing overages every second
0: yeah i love the story though because i love how you just took the initiative you know and didn't wait for something wanted to ask you to do that you know you just saw a chance and you pounced on it
1: right yeah no i said i can write this stuff yeah and then, I, you know, I worked for them for a while, and then I worked directly for CBS for a while after that. So, you know.
0: Yeah. Then tell me about making your way to now, doing what you're doing now. Yeah, so
1: I was passion. doing a lot of stuff. You know, I was doing a lot of stuff for the studios, too. I, I went into my trailer period where I was doing, trail, you know, writing and producing trailers, being creative director. So I was doing that, and I was working at a company, an agency that had DVD in it. So I ended up starting the DVD division of this company. So we were doing documentaries that went on DVDs. So that was getting back into documentaries again, which was great actually. So Disney and Warner's were, were my clients mostly. And we did, you know, I was doing the West Wing. I did the uh, at the time. I did John Lennon Imagine anniversary DVD. And we did documentaries for all of, all of them. and. It was actually a lot of fun because it was kind of under the radar material. so you could come up with really crazy ideas mm. and they'd just say yes. And I was like, What? You know and so it was kind of really fun, you know, yeah. And, and they were making a lot of that stuff back then. And then that sort of ended because they were like, you know, home entertainment was starting to go away in the physical sense, and everything was starting to be you know vod and and that that kind of digital transformation that they were doing. So they said, yeah, we don't need to make this stuff," you know. So that business kind of, you know, once again, you see a business rise and then it peaks and then it starts to fall. So the resources weren't there. So then Warner Brothers hired me to consult. So I come because I pretty much worked in every department, mm-hmm. you know. So they hired me on the the DVD side, on the creative advertising side, on the DVD menu side, and they were really great because. I kind of knew everyone. I was working with the same agency. So, you know, so I was not on staff, but I worked enough to make it, you know, work. Yeah. Then I came to another crossroads. And um, I thought, what's next, you know? And I got a call. (laughs) Once again, (laughs) I got a call, weirdly enough. Uh, I knew I knew a psychiatrist who was treating an elderly relative of mine, and I used to have to talk to him and tell him what drug she was on, blah, 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 you know, what her wellness thing was, and he said, you know, they're trying to do a documentary on this guy who was my mentor, and I think you would be a good fit for this, so, you know, why don't you read his book, and I read the book, and I flipped out, I was like, oh my god, this is a movie, it's such a movie, but they didn't have the Financing to do a movie, but they did have the financing to do a documentary. So he said, "All right, go talk to the guy." And I, you know, I went to talk to Dr. Bale, who is the subject of my documentary. And I pitched him what I saw, what I saw in it, and they liked. And they were vetting a lot of pitches, and they liked my, you know, the way I saw it. And I wrote up a proposal, and basically, the rest is history. <laughs> so I mean it wasn't that easy but you know
0: yeah let's talk about some of the hard parts uh, well yeah I read that this took you like three years to get from yeah. start to finish and
1: yeah. that you
0: also started your own company yes out of this instead
1: of working for somebody else well this is another um, good good thing that I did because when this film started there were other people that could have been involved in it But I didn't really know them and I didn't know what that landscape would be like. So I opted not to get involved with these other partnerships and I I decided to start my own company Mm -hmm. because I had all the wherewithal. I mean, I knew everything. I knew who to hire and I could easily put a team together. So I started my own company and they funded my company. So the investors funded my company. So that's how it started. And you know, I brought on a great line producer, Edith Becker, who's wonderful, and whole. You know, is it the credit reads, reads like public television credits? I mean, there's a million people involved in this thing. <laughs> so, um, but we started in I think 2016, and um, I wasn't. I, the idea of taking Doctor Bale back to Germany to the, you know, to the place he was incarcerated was not in the original budget but I thought it would be a very good thing to do if he was open to it and he was open to it and I think it it changed the course of the film for sure um yeah yeah those are one yeah a little ahead of myself but yeah
0: tell everybody so tell everybody what the film is about
1: yeah the film's about really an exceptional exceptional human being named Dr. Bernard Bale who is a psychoanalyst who in World War II who's a Jewish um lead radar navigator in Europe. He went on 25 missions. He was shot down on the 25th mission, which is kind of an omen, and captured by the Nazis. And as he was recovering in a German hospital, he fell in love with his German nurse in a clandestine affair that happened between love letters, which I had. So his affair with this woman changed the course of his life and and changed his mind he um wanted to become a healer he wanted to put an end to war and he saw in her what he called the power of the divine feminine and that made him go on to become a doctor and psychoanalyst who ended up pioneering early theory in about transgenerational transmission of trauma that happens in utero you know the idea that that mental health anguish can come from past generations and kind of epigenetically can be, genes could be turned on and off. And I'm getting a little ahead of myself here, but that was his early idea. And he was an early advocate for women because he saw the oppression of women over time and that how women are bearing the next generation and they need to be protected. They need to be a part of society and that we will never have peace in the world until women have a place at the table. So, his mission in life was to put an end to war, because he had been through such terrible things and witnessed such terrible things in the war. And, you know, it seemed like a simple idea. And, and in a way, it is. It's like the idea of if each, each person can end the wars inside themselves, that's going to ripple out. And this is a this is not just the United States, this is global. You know, he feels that everyone to a greater or lesser degree has some sort of unconscious imprint um, that's holding them back from being, you know, having the full love that they can in their life. And our tagline is love conquers all. And and it certainly happened for him in his hospital, room. you know, that he didn't know when this nurse, Irmgard, walked in his room that night in the dark whether she was coming to give him a lethal injection. Mm -hmm. He didn't know, he was a frightened, you know, frightened war, you know, war in in prison, imprisoned, you know, prisoner. So when she came in and offered him a glass of wine and that started their relationship, Mm -hmm. um, a whole scope of life opened up before him that he never could have imagined, never. And and one of the things he says in the film, which is so poignant um, and so true, is that at one point he says, you know, in, in a way he lived under a lucky star um, by being saved by this woman. But he says, a lot of people helped me in my life, even the enemy. Yeah. And it's a very chilling moment because it's really true and that can happen. And his, you know, his vision for the future which is also very poignant. Um, you know, his wish for the future was that someday there will be an invading armies bringing gifts, you know, and it's just still makes, gives me the chills, you know, no torture, no maiming, no bad memories, you know, and it's a vision for the future that he really spent his life devoted to really, Mm -hmm. um, the easing of mental anguish and, uh, yeah. So anyway, that's what the films.
0: <laughs> yeah. Talk about and um, some of the moments you were saying it was a big decision for you to get the budget to take him back to Germany. And I know there's some key moments that also happened, like when you heard the chimes and those Once types of again, things. Again, it's
1: the- these serendipitous moments, these fortuitous things that happen, which he was a very much a believer in. He was very metaphysical. And when we were in Germany, I took him back to the room he was incarcerated in. And he was a little town called Guppingham, Germany, about a half hour outside of Stuttgart. We took the train there from Stuttgart. And when we got there, I mean, he hadn't been there in 71 years. And we had scouted beforehand. I had a team in Germany scouting what room. We could only get a description of what room he was in in that school, which was then a hospital. Um, And we had picked out one room that we thought was it. But when he got there and walked up the steps, He's like 95 years old at this point he walks up all these steps and and like a kind of like a sniffing dog he sniffed his way right to the room and it was not the room we thought it was but when he opened the door he's like this is the room and we were just like oh my god you know and that was like 71 years and it was also um both cathartic and traumatic for him because He realized that he had been responsible for killing people and, you know, the German people were just so amazingly generous and compassionate and helpful to us that it really, his relationships there, you know, our interactions were really quite cathartic. But back to the serendis, I haven't forgotten about the serendipitous moment. Um, I just derailed for a second. But yeah, that's good. These doors um, are great. So it's funny. Yeah, so <laughs> we were we were outside and um he said, Oh, we we're standing on the steps outside, and he said he used to hear her play the flute outside. And as he's talking about Irmgard saying, you know, I remember she did this, I remember she did that, I'm sure she's here in spirit. She's here in spirit. And at that moment the the church bells went off the chimes went off and we were like oh my god you know and he says she's here she's here and it was just one of those moments and there are m- several moments that happen like that but yeah
0: yeah i i love long. things like that you know because yeah. i do feel like we have that those connections with people you know that that, that never go away um how right. was it for you you said you have all the love letters what was it like reading all yeah, those?
1: We had all the love letters from her to him, but not from him to her. And she wrote in English hmm. and, and she could speak English, um, but she wrote in English. And so I had all of those letters. It was beautiful. And then, then I use animation graphics, too, as you can see in the film, to hmm. portray those letters. Yeah, I want to get
0: Beautiful. your thoughts? It's the, the, one of the moments he says he there's a picture book that's left on his hotel when he goes back to search right. for her, and he's convinced right. it's her. Do you do you think yes, it is? And then if so, why do you think she didn't want didn't see him?
1: Well, this is the big question. You know, people want to know why didn't he see her again? And I have my own theories about that. And you know, at the end of the war, when he left her, he never got her name or address. And I thought that was really interesting because I thought in a way he was fulfilling his own imprint of not being able to have the love he needed either, which was from his mother who had to, was forced into an arranged marriage and was always yearning for this love that she couldn't have. So I think unconsciously that may have been going on. Now, this is my theory. And I think the arc of the film really is him coming back to love you know, this pure love that he talks about. And now I'm forgetting the question he asked me, which was about- But
0: um, do you think it was her that left it? And then if yeah. so, like, why did so, she- So yeah,
1: because he went back to Germany on a conference in 1985 and he, before he got there, he he put, you know, all this, you know, he put stuff in the newspapers to try to find her and magazines and no one responded. And he thinks it was because they portrayed him as some sort of Hollywood shrink. And it was too much closer to the war than it wasn't at that time. And no one kind of wanted to be associated with it. So that's what he thought. Now, he wasn't sure if she was alive or not. But that was definitely, you know, someone, whether it was her or not, brought this book of drawings to his hotel room. So they knew he was in town. Yeah. Um, and I don't know. I'd yeah. like to think it was her, but there's no for sure yeah
0: somebody clearly wanted him to have it you know if they sniffed out where he was staying and all of that so
1: right exactly
0: Mm, that's so interesting such a great story and then he finds love at the end
1: he He does he finds love (laughs) it's 95 and i think she was i don't know 62 or something at the time uh cynthia his widow and yeah they you know they found this kind of true love at the end of his life and it was lovely you know
0: yeah well just such a such a great story and you did such a great job of doing the storytelling and you're just like sucked in i mean from the early on the the scenes of you know is taking us back through being you know the radar um in his navy days and the stories and you know and and the story when he talks about saving the life of his um, yes captain oh, or, yeah
1: oh my god that was such an incredible story and that's a true story i mean you can find that online that story it's interesting yeah yeah so crazy and that's why i say he was kind of born under a lucky star in a way not that he didn't struggle but people did come to his aid and he did believe in you know was kind of spirituality and what he later came to you know call god for himself he did believe in god yeah. um but yeah, mm. he was pretty spiritual yeah. guy. You know, he believed in the angels. You know, the angels were coming. So even the first time when he was in the in the ice storm and yeah. lost his way, he he had an intuition which way to go. Mm-hmm. Could have been the wrong thing. Who knows? But he he lets himself he let himself be guided. Yeah. So yeah. he always stayed to his true north, as he would put it. And that's a that's a good lesson for everyone, I think.
0: Yeah, definitely. What was this process like for you creating this film?
1: It was it was one of the best things I've ever done in terms of, you know, creatively, certainly, because I was able to combine both cinema, you know, cinema verite styles, recreations, interviews. So I got the best of all, <laughs> I got it all in there, you know, great motion graphics and animation. I have to say. I mean, <laughs> Uman Ku, uh, Kuomara, animation guy, amazing. Um, who I worked with in promo, by the way. Oh, wow. He was genius. Yeah. And we reconnected and I said, you got to do this film. And he did. It's just really, really great. Promo so, connection,
0: stay strong.
1: <laughs> so on a creative side, it was just 100%. And I had, you know, I had investors who were just, You know, do what you need to do, you know, we're going to support you, you know, and they knew how to support artists so Mm -hmm. I pretty much had free reign um, on on that you know who to hire and how to creatively do everything Mm -hmm. was really in my in my ballpark. And then the great thing was I got to work with my daughter on it, which was interesting because the mother daughter connection all throughout the film.
0: Yes, definitely. Um,
1: she was the story editor and researcher, and she had come from the legal field. So she was, you know, she was forensic. She could find any <laughs> she could find anything, and she was fantastic visually and and on a directorial side even, you know. So that was interesting because as a single mom. I spent more time with her when I was on this film than I, was, I referred to her and said, I don't think we've ever spent this much time together because I was always working, you know? And so to get the opportunity to work with her and see her blossom um, as well it was just beyond great, really yeah. beyond great.
0: Yeah, um, what a wonderful experience to have together. Did you talk yeah. about whether you think, you know, the philosophies, do you guys- Oh, totally, Oh, life? we
1: totally talk about it, yeah. And I, I absolutely think it's you know, uh, there's a lot of truth to it. I'm not a psychiatrist, psychoanalyst, psychologist, so I can't speak to the theory of whether true, not true. I can't speak to that. What I can speak to is um, explaining it well. (laughs) I think I, that was my job to explain it and highlight it, and that's actually what I love to do. Um, I like to forensically get into process. Whether it's, uh, you know, a complex theory like this or space station, you know, um, I worked with the ISS astronauts, you know, breaking down their process and or the process of making a film or whatever it is. I just love, love being able to do that in a creative way. And I think that was accomplished in this film.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, What did you get to do with the astronauts?
1: It was for... The International Space Station DVD um, that Warner Brothers did it was not, it was an IMAX uh, IMAX mm-hmm. film DVD, and I worked, worked with a lot of the you know, astronauts. Interesting, interesting. It was, it was pretty fascinating. Yeah.
0: It's back to the film. Were there some any challenges that you faced or moments you had to push through?
1: Um, well, there's always that but I've gotten so good at problem solving. I don't actually think of it as problem, but there was one fun thing that happened only because I can look at it as fun things now. I mean, I pretty much don't panic on anything, but um, we had to build a wall. We had to build the hospital wall when we were doing the recreations. Um, we had to build wall and doorways and we did, and we had a sound stage, so. They built it off the soundstage, but when they went to load the door, the, the wall in, it didn't fit in the door because we had <laughs> rented a soundstage that didn't have the giant doors like on the at the studio. And it wouldn't fit in the door, so we had to cut the <laughs> we had to cut the wall and put a you know put a molding over it, but you can't really see it because it's yeah. dark enough, you know. So that was fun. Oh, thank God we knew that a few days ahead. Um, <laughs>
0: How do you manage? You say you stay calm. How do you manage to do that? Because I know productions can get crazy and, you know,
1: it can be. Managed to do. uh, What did you say Manage to do? To stay
0: calm. You said you don't really let challenges phase you.
1: Yeah. Well, you have to have the best team around you. And so I did. Um, And so I didn't really, the, the logistics team, you know, we would, we would meet for sure, but I didn't have to get totally involved and, all of it I mean at least the planning of it we'd pick a date and then the logistics you know a date where we would shoot blah 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 if I needed a backdrop I would I would do the backdrop and all that stuff and you know figure out what the setup was going to be or storyboard something but aside from that um I had a great logistics team yeah it's great really great
0: where can everybody
1: watch this film Oh goody! <laughs> <That is true. laughs> um, the film is on Apple TV Plus, iTunes, Amazon Prime, Voodoo, and others. It's out there. It's out there for the taking.
0: Yeah. It's wonderful. I just watched it on Amazon today, and it's. Oh, you know, thank
1: it was, you. Yeah, thank you. Great
0: great job hope you
1: left a review
0: (laughs) oh that i haven't done yet but i can do that
1: thank you (laughs) yeah you're welcome yeah
0: you're welcome well let's talk a little bit for those listening who may have um you know aspirations of following your footsteps have a passion for documentaries or filmmaking you know any tips or pieces of advice of things you've learned through your career of um you know how to find success or what what kind
1: of works um this is going to sound cliche but um Follow what you're interested in. And, and I have to say today it's different than when I was coming up because when I was coming up, the barrier to entry was huge. Like if you weren't like a trust fund kid whose father or mother gave you, you know, a 16 millimeter expensive camera and film, you know, you didn't get to do it, but now there's no excuse for you not making a movie on your iPhone just to test your skills and your passion. So just do it. I mean, that's, The cliche, just do it. If you think you can do it, do it. Mm
0: -hmm. What about, um, how have you seen the industry kind of evolve uh,
1: for women over the years as well? Um, I mean, it's evolved. It's certainly evolving now. And so there's more opportunities. Certainly when I was coming up in the feature film world, forget it, it was hard enough to be even an editor there. And um, I mean, I was once told, they wouldn't hire me because i you know women get their periods i was actually they actually said that to me oh. we don't hire women cuz they get their periods and they're moody mm-hmm. like you're not you know yeah. um but you know i wouldn't want to work for them anyway right right and it was a commercial editing house in new york you know it was like forget it but so i think the opportunities are definitely there now but you have to go out and you know kind of grab it mm mm-hmm.
0: What's your process for, run on this one, you wrote, produced, and directed all, like, how do you kind of go through the process of wearing all those hats?
1: It's an interesting question, um, because it was the first time that I had to, um, you know, where I was handling investors as well, who were just mm. wonderful human beings, and so I was handling all the money. I was really the only one that had check signing privileges, and um, I handled that. And the the wearing the three hats is really, um, it's something I always did in the documentary realm. So it wasn't something that was new to me because you just kind of got a gorilla it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I can't say, I see the process for me is really starting with something creative. You know, what's, what is the image? It's usually an image of some sort with an emotion attached to it that's gonna drive the project. And I, I was like, what is the emotional through line of this film and it was you know let's say love conquers all or or just just keep that emo- the love emotion going through the film mm-hmm. and 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 in every um in every act of the film i think it does do that um, but the main image of the film that carried me forward was the image of the nurse coming into the dark room with the, with the flashlight that kind of blows out. Because when I first read the book, that was the thing that struck me. I thought, okay, here it is. This is the dark and light of it. And this is what needs to happen. Dark and light, dark and light, like music all through the film. you know. And, and I think that it, I think it fulfills on that.
0: Yeah, it definitely does.
1: Hmm.
0: How hard is it or what do you do to get, financing for projects
1: well i'm a i'm a kind of a bad person to ask for that because this is the first time where i've had to get financing and and it was a relatively easy path so other other times you know you have to go out and get grants and everyone else is trying to get the same grant and it's not that much money Mm -hmm. you know or if you can sell you know i'd say today if you can sell a docu-series with some big talent attached you can make some money Otherwise it's going to be tough to do. It's tough, not impossible, but you got to have the fortitude to want to do it. Yeah.
0: Any other lessons? I know the, the saying, yes, we got any other things that you think. they? Yeah.
1: My big one is like, nobody knows anything. So feel free to take advice. And I, I say do take advice or listen to advice, but at the end of the day, no one is you, you know, and no one can tell you when the next hit's coming. No one can tell you what's gonna go viral. And none of that, none of that shit matters. Mm. What matters is that you get to fulfill something that you had a vision of. And if it fails, it fails. But at least you had you had your try at it. So, you know, people, but it's not gospel because nobody knows anything. Mm-hmm. I know that sounds awful, but
0: no, I love it because it's like definitely sticking true to your uniqueness, your vision, you know, what's going to separate you or because your thoughts from someone else.
1: There is no way one could have predicted or I could have predicted that this film would come my way. I mean, it's never, at least for me, it's never been a straight line. It's not a straight path. And so once again, it's that be open, be open. And as, as Ted Lasso says, believe. You know, you just got to have something going on in the back of you. You know, because yeah. there are tough times. Yeah, I won't. I won't lie there. I mean, there's been challenges, been a lot of abundance, and then sometimes not. Yeah.
0: And how much do you love Ted Lasso?
1: I can't even tell you. I've seen. The, I've seen it both seasons three times. I love it. I and love it. You don't too. even get me started on Succession. That's a whole other thing.
0: Oh, that's what whatever. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm behind on that one. But... Obsessed.
1: Obsessed. Also seen that three times <laughs> every episode.
0: I love it. I knew a friend's kept telling me to watch Ted Lasso. So I was a little late to the party. And then once I did, I was like, oh my gosh. I'm like, I love aren't you Aren't you
1: just in love with him? I mean, yes. it's just I... the best. <sighs>
0: So it just makes me happy. I just, yeah, the episodes go too quickly. I just, yeah, love it. Love I know.
1: I hate it when it's over, you know, and I'm such an Anglophile anyway. And it's like, oh my God, this is so my wheelhouse. Yeah, yeah,
0: I love it. All right. Well, what's next for you?
1: Well, it's hard to say, but um, yeah. I, I may be doing a film um, on PTSD treatments. Mm-hmm. Hopefully that'll be a series. Um, we're talking about developing And Now Love as a feature film. And I've got a um a book that that I optioned with a partner that's um about a young Kenyan girl's struggle to overcome the patriarchal, you know, a patriarchal society basically. And she does. So those things are on the docket at the moment. And uh, who knows, I'm open.
0: Yeah, you're gonna get a call another call or something from I don't me. Know. <laughs> yeah, <we'll see. laughs> I, I can't so. wait to see what's next. <laughs> we'll tell yeah. everybody again where they can find the movie and then where they can follow you on a social media or follow your career.
1: Well, you can find and out and now love, you can find it on Amazon, Apple TV, plus iTunes, Vudu. And there are other platforms out there as well, but it's, it's readily available. Mm-hmm. So feel free to, if you do it on Amazon, feel free to write a review um i'm at uh, if you want to try to get me i'm not a big social media person but you can try me on linkedin uh jill linkedin.com slash jill demby guest that's d-e-m like mary b-y guest g-u-e-s-t and i frequent uh instagram on occasion so you could dm me there if you're if you're interested at jill demby guest mm-hmm.
0: Well, Jill, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, you're so wonderful. I love hearing all your your journey and about the film. And I just best of luck with the film. You've already won some awards with the film, haven't you?
1: Uh, We have. We won three film festival awards, um, two for best documentary and one for best documentary director. Uh, So three out of three. Not bad.
0: Not bad at all. Congratulations.
1: So yeah, so let me know about your promo situation. Feel free to email me. <laughs>
0: okay, we will do. Thank you.
1: <laughs> okay, take care. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. All
0: right, that's a wrap for today, guys. Thanks again for listening. You can follow us everywhere at Tom Girl TV, and we'll see you here again Tom next week. Tom. Bye-bye. Tom Girl.